0: Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. For the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship from Vin University in Hanoi, Vietnam. So it's really, as and Williams said in the movie, Good Morning Vietnam. Please welcome today Bob Jordan, co-author of Right leader, right time. Bob, so great to have you.
1: Mark, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a long time.
0: Yeah, I know we're we're actually booked out uh, until uh, June of next year. So every Friday has taken till June of next year. I've taken off the last two Fridays as I've moved to Vietnam and now I'm here and it's 11 uh, pm. here and 12 pm. in your part of the world. So uh, let's talk about your background. Can you give the audience a little bit about your professional background?
1: Sure, so uh, I'm your classic entrepreneur in a way. I was uh, at a very good business school in the U.S., decided to drop out to start my first company. what, What that was was I launched the first magazine in the world that covered online and eventually the internet. It was a brilliant idea. It was only five years too early uh, in, in, for the launch of the World Wide Web. But um, it was a great experience. It it, uh, it eventually put me onto the Inc. 500 list of fastest growing businesses in the U.S. Uh, and I ended up selling it to a big publisher. Um, selling for me was not some, I'm going to go off to the beaches now experience. I was kind of wondering, what I was going to do with the rest of my life, and coincidentally, fortuitously, uh, I I had met a guy, and he had this really weird job title. He he was called an interim CEO. He was probably the first interim CEO in the United States. And uh, when he told me that he had this kind of project-based leadership that he did, he handed me his new business card. This was in the mid '90s, and his card said CEO Yahoo. And that made a very big impression on me because coming from the online world, we knew Yahoo was going to go public on zero revenue, Uh, not zero earnings, zero revenue. And so I I said, you're now my mentor. And I started taking on gigs, uh, project-based leadership roles, and did that for a number of years. And uh, eventually social networks came around. We formed an organization called Interim Execs. And, and that is a worldwide uh, matchmaking service. Big fo- focus is on company owners and especially owners facing transitions. As a result of 7,000 executives kind of showing up on our doorstep, we wrote a book called Right Leader, Right Time about leadership style. And I know, Mark, you and I are going to dive into that. So
0: why did you co-author this book? I'm sorry, Why? Why did you co-author this book?
1: Why, the, why did my co-author book? Olivia Wagner is also uh, co-founder of Interim Execs, so we had a a uh, shared history of of launching, failing, revising, growing a organization together, and and because we had all of the shared experience with these leaders, co-authoring was absolutely the thing to do. It's also a little head banging when you take six years writing a book that at some points, I'm sure she wanted to kill me, but um, we survived it.
0: It took you six years to write this, huh? It did. It did. Wow. Uh, how, how do you define leadership? Leadership
1: is the responsibility and the accountability for a, another human being. Um, and And that literal definition for anyone in an organization, if someone reports to you, you're in a leadership role. Uh, I also think it applies, you know, for organizations. If you have responsibility for client relationships, you're in a leadership role. Um,
0: When your daughter was born, she was a preemie and you were nervous, uh, nervous to explain how the doctor calmed you down as my wife and I went through a similar experience as we talked about before the show started. And what did you learn about leadership through that? Because you talk about that in the book. You know, Mark, I I love you're the only you're the only guy who's who's asked me about
1: that. It's it's the first page of the book because it was terrifying. You know, we had a daughter born at one pound five ounces, and her life hangs in the balance. You know, she was born at you know not supposed to be born at 25 weeks, and we were first time parents. You you have no idea what is going on. You're surrounded you, you know by people and machines and And at one point she had to go in for open heart surgery, and uh, I was kind of out of my mind. Just we were in the best children's hospital in Chicago, and um, we were in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. And uh, the doors opened, and this doctor, a woman, walked in, and her team was with her. And I don't know how to describe this in any rational way. Something happened to me that. I calmed down. She she hadn't said anything yet. Everything in me got calm. And she started talking to us. And and her name is Marlita Reynolds. She's now the head of of uh all all of surgery for children's hospital in Chicago. She she started talking to us, but I just my body reacted instantly with this feeling like we're in great hands. There's nothing to worry about. And and we were and and it all worked and our daughter is now 26 but it the, this visceral feel for somebody so well trained so competent so in charge this is the thing we all seek i think in work whether we are in that role or whether we are answering to other people in that role
0: yeah i Went through the exact same experience you did as we talked about before. And nothing felt better when that doctor walked in and she looked like she was totally in charge all of a sudden. You feel hopeless, but she walks in and she makes you feel like there's no way that your child isn't coming out. And that was great leadership for me as well. Who are the it's, leaders it's you It's amazing up to? to me, Mark?
1: Sorry for interrupting you, that you yeah. had this the same experience. And I have to tell you, part of my feeling was. It wasn't that I knew the outcome. I I didn't know. I didn't know, but I just thought we're in the best hands we can be in. And that, to me, is the way that it is for any of us in business. You know, everything else for me is small stakes. And I'm in a lot of different companies, and no one's going to die as a result of the decisions these business people are are making. We do the best that we can, and we don't know what the outcome is going to be.
0: As we do as parents too, we do the best we can, but we don't know what the outcomes going to be. Uh, who are the leaders you look up to, and why?
1: Well, <clears throat> it's a great question. You know, historically, we put examples into the book because people become iconic. Um, Thomas Edison and Steve Jobs. You know, we we talk about this idea of leadership style, and so I know we're going to talk about this later in terms of four different styles, but. If you look at what we call artist leader, uh, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs, they they exist now as icons for everybody, because of just massive wild creativity matched with an ability to actually produce something, and and to get it into the marketplace. So for me, they are standouts. You know, when I think of, for example, the energy in the world that fixes things, you know, someone like Winston Churchill. Um, and we don't want to relate this model to politics, but once someone is passed and they're kind of in the historical record, they be, they can become more iconic. And Winston Churchill saved the Western world. You know, Abraham Lincoln, there's a reason why he is regarded by many people as the greatest American president we've ever had. It corresponded with the worst crisis that America has ever faced and how he dealt with that.
0: Well, um, the book Team of Rivals is one of the greatest books I've ever read uh, by um, Joyce Carol Oates, Kearns. Joyce Kearns, good one. And you can't put that book down. And when you read that book about Lincoln's leadership, you think nobody could have been better. And guys who had looked down on him realized they weren't in, uh, all the, he hired all his team of rivals, right? And what they all realized after working for Lincoln was, they couldn't even lick his boots you know he they didn't even belong to breathe the same air as him as and that's what the amazing thing was about lincoln was he was you, so you, down to earth
1: yes uh, in the book you know he had he had an expression that sometimes i reminded myself because you know we're 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 leaders and you leadership means you have to make decisions and lincoln said of the civil war if i'm right so be it but if i'm wrong It would not matter if a dozen angels were dancing on the head of the head of a pin singing my praises. I would be damned. And 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 this is the way it is for all of us making big decisions. I think if you're really invested in it, all of you goes into it.
0: No question about it. In the book, you wrote about uh, your first startup that went bankrupt and brought it back, turned into an Inc. 500, which you mentioned here. Uh, how did you find, how how did you do it, and what did you learn about leadership through that? Because you ended up buying that company out of bankruptcy.
1: Yes, I I was uh, 26 when I started. The company was called Online Access, and the way I described the start was, if there's a mistake you can make in business, I made it. Um, and, and within two years, it had gone bust. And then I, I did this thing, I held a pity party for myself, Only one person was invited. Uh And at the end of the week, I started thinking, you know, I got so many things wrong, but there were these things that went right. Like it was selling on newsstands around the world, and it had one of the highest sell throughs of any magazine. And and it had thousands of subscribers. and, And so ignorance, in some cases, is a very powerful, positive force. I ended up going into bankruptcy court and... About a million dollars had been put in by investors uh, into this and I bid 125 dollars for the assets and the court accepted the bid and it was a, it was a lesson to me you know in a lot of ways and there were a lot of assumptions I had made the first time around, and I I threw out a lot of those assumptions and I put back all the investors into the new company without asking for any fresh money. and so uh, there were a lot of lessons from that that I could not get from business school.
0: That was very honorable because not many people would do that, but that was the right thing to do for sure. I had Uh, to do it. And and if you wanted to raise more money after doing that, they'd be writing you checks blindly just because you just did that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sports is where a public sees leadership real time with no buffer. I'm 62 and people win Super Bowls, World Series, World Cups, Stanley Cups, college championships, are, getting, are all getting fired after one or two bad seasons. Why are owners and schools making changes so quickly? And what does that say about leadership in 2023? Because you would win a national championship. You're pretty much guaranteed a job for life. You win stand, three Stanley Cups like the coach did in Chicago. There's no way a team's firing somebody who won three Stanley Cups. So what's going on here? The fluidity of
1: the world has increased thanks to social media, more transparency, uh, and and social media, not just in the glamorous sense, but but in the sense that it is easier to track all of us. And so there is some downside in the sense that longevity is down um, among senior leadership. But I will tell you that part of the way the world is now organized, uh, the book we wrote about leadership in these distinct styles and how how you can kind of have that, all of your capability be more portable in the world, that didn't exist 30 years ago. We couldn't have written the book 30 years ago and the capability didn't exist because then you had much more of an entrenched sense of you're hired for life. You go to work General Motors at the age of 22, pretty much your goal was you were going to spend your, your life there. And that scenario is gone or different now.
0: So why did you write that mindset is important and what kind of mindset?
1: Well, we had a book before Right Leader Right Time called How They Did It. Um, and it was a series of 45 Q&A interviews with these champion company founders from, as we said, the heartland, the Midwest of the US. And, and they had, they had all started from nothing and to qualify to be in that book, they had to launch, grow, sell for $100 million or more, go public at $300 million or more. And one of the interesting things was that none of those founders, and they created over $60 billion in value, none of those founders were qualified to do what they wanted to do when they started. And there was a universal feeling among them, which is you'll pick up the skills along the way, or even more importantly, you will hire for it. And, and so attitude trumps skill all day long.
0: Please talk about the four modes of, or styles of leadership, fixer, artist, builder, and strategist. So we,
1: we have been approached at this point by about 7,500 executives from uh, 50 countries the majority of those people we would describe as having career journeys and leadership experiences that are okay but not great they're all right but you wouldn't say oh my god this is one of the greatest leaders i've ever seen if you look at the top 2 or 3% however these are all incredible people from various you know walks of life and what we noticed among exceptional leaders was that there were four distinct styles. And when we say style, we're referring to the fact that someone develops a more specific approach and process and system to what they are doing. So as you said, we gave them those labels, fixer, artist, builder, and strategist.
0: You wrote uh, Churchill, who saved Western democracy by making sure England did not give in to the Nazis, had three of four leadership modes but still was tossed out and ultimately brought back. What did we learn from that? I mean, it was pretty amazing. The guy beat um, was the key to beating the Germans by keeping the British in there. And yet, as soon as the war was over, they booted him out. It's, it's a great
1: question, Mark. And, and Churchill is the exception that proves the rule, which is that none of us are, are all things. None of us are great at everything. Um, we believe that, that most exceptional leaders have a dominant leadership style or a dominant in the secondary. Churchill was extraordinary in many ways, but the dominant thing with Churchill was what we call fixer energy, which is this repeat desire to run into a burning building. Now, everybody who's in any organization or a leadership role, you're used to solving problems. But the question is, is that where you get your energy? In Churchill's case, it absolutely was, and so the British public, he was heaven sent for fighting um, World War II, but the British were incredibly tired and fatigued after the war, and he was no longer the right leader.
0: How does a leader know they were wrong for a situation? That requires a great
1: deal of self-awareness, um, I'll give you an example, which I think is both, which is great and cautionary. One of the energies we describe is, excuse me, it's called builder, builder leadership. And one of the greatest builder leaders of the modern era, era we would say is Sheryl Sandberg. Sheryl Sandberg was the number two at Facebook now meta under Mark Zuckerberg. Okay. Uh, When Cheryl joined Facebook, there were a couple hundred employees, revenue was about 100 million, Um, and she stated at the outset her intention was to stay about five years. If you fast forward seven years later, 70,000 employees, 3 billion people on the platform, uh, revenue of $100 billion, that for us is one of the greatest examples of a, a builder kind of energy in the modern era, okay? That's all Sheryl Sandberg. But it's interesting, she stayed another seven years. And what happened in the second half? Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, election problems, a pivot to meta that I'm not sure she was really fully into. She wrote a brilliant book called Lean In that she got you know, arrows, arrows in the back all over the place. And so she's not only an example of great builder, But she's also an example of we think builder energy is something where when you reach scale, you need to move on. You need to move to your next project. And I think she knew it up front. And then she violated her own rule. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it does make sense. I mean, that happens all the time that people just stay too long past their expiration date and now it's time for new leadership and and she did have a very very long run at that kind of in that kind of spot. Um please tell us about a leader named Eric Kish and the importance of adaptability because that was a great story in your book. Thank you. Uh
1: Eric <clears throat> Eric Kish uh grew up in Romania um and uh, the way he came on our radar was that uh, when this the, the Soviet uh, Empire collapsed uh, there was a group of people and there was a state-owned oil refinery in Romania it was a billion dollar asset and they bought it for seven million dollars and Eric was the CEO and after three years Eric took it public at 450 million and when we met him and he said7 to 450 this is an example of a leader you know, at the top of their game in the top one or 2% of leaders we had ever met. And so we wanted to write about him, um, but but it, but it wasn't just that, you know, there's there's a pattern to all of this. And so for example, his father who was an electrical engineer defected, he had left and was on a project in the US and it was communist Romania at the time. And he said, I'm sorry, but I can't come back. Well, if you were within a Soviet state at that point of that happened, the state believed the entire family were traitors. So they literally threw Eric, his mother and his sister. Eric was, uh, I think it was 19 at the time. His sister was 16. They threw the three of them out on the street and just said, we're done, good luck. Um, and so it's a it's an inspiring story of, of how he triumphed through all of that. And he learned adaptability because the family made its way to Israel. He joined the Israeli Defense Force, which is very
0: big on the idea of adaptability um, in war. Yeah, and he, uh, great stories about how he was able to adapt uh, in almost any situation. Our, our military trained leaders? Well, sorry, if you
1: if you don't mind, one more story about him. Yes, I think
0: please. The
1: the the king of the Roma, the king of the Gypsies, called the Bully Basha. And when they took over this oil refinery, it was broken, it didn't work. It was, it was a billion dollar piece of junk and they needed this, this uh, filter tower. They needed this huge structure and the Roma had control of another refinery. And so he had to go negotiate. He spent, <laughs> excuse me, 48 hours with the Bulibasha negotiating with him for this filter, and it's a good story because, because when they finally got to business, which took over a day of talking, uh, it turned out that the, the king of the Roma, he had two of them, not one. And it's a good story of how Eric, and he walked out, he was, he, he, you know, the, you, you have to negotiate there. And, and so he heard a number and it was totally reasonable, but he got up to, to leave because he wouldn't have been
0: respected otherwise. Yeah, and, and having that second one was a total godsend for them, right? Right. Amazing. Um, are military trained leaders better than MBA leaders, and what do my militaries teach that is unique and valuable?
1: Man, that is such a great question. Um, had had we been talking 100 years ago, and, and they had Zoom 100 years ago, I wouldn't have given the same answer. It happens now that there are a number of militaries um, in the US across all of the service branches, especially the army and the Marines, um, and in Israel where, where the leadership training is superb. It's best in class. it's interesting because in our specialty, right? So I have this background with executives who are all fractional interim project-based people. Military, Former military service indexes three times higher in terms of an ability to take on these roles and succeed. This is nothing against um, a classic MBA education. I think the point is is that for successful leadership, you need a framework
0: and uh, great military service is one of those. Yeah, I I think so as well. I had somebody on uh, the show, And he was a uh, commander in the air, in the Navy. And he ran the Aegis defense system. And we were talking about Elon Musk and and Twitter. And he goes, you know, um, everybody says how wrong Elon Musk has been to let go of uh, 6,000 of 8,000 people. And maybe he didn't do it for the reasons I'm going to tell you. But in the Navy, we start out uh, by having the least number of people operating anything, and then finding out how many people do we really need. So for him, getting rid of 8,000 people and getting down to 2,000 people, now he's going to really find out, what does it really take to run a business like this? And so I thought that was an interesting answer to all of us who wondered, what the heck is this guy doing by uh, reducing it? And he may not have had the same intention, but he's certainly going to learn, as we all will, About what's it going to take to turn Twitter around, and how many people do you really need to run it? And did these guys have an excess of people when they were doing it? So we'll see what kind of leader he is in a turnaround situation. Yeah. Um, You you start the strategist leadership chapter off by talking about cadence in is about cadence is the mantra for a strategist. What are you talking about here?
1: Uh, the language between each of these styles is is um, so vastly different you could you could drive a truck through it and the language of a strategist leader and strategist leader all leaders employ strategy okay we're all great at strategy that's not what we mean strategist as a label for us could have been captain pilot conductor quarterback um, the the language from strategist is around heartbeat of an organization, the syncopated beat that you are trying to quicken pace. There is a beat to the to how a board of directors functions. A marketing function has its own cadence. A sales team has a cadence. An operations team has a cadence. And and we heard this just this beautiful language from strategists in terms of what you are doing when you are trying to quicken the pace of an organization. And part of the definition of strategist, just to be clear, is this is a leader at scale. This is a leader in charge of vaster or complex organization, way beyond personal span of control. You know, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits, he had this great phrase, personal span of control. And the energies that define fixer, artist, and builder Those folks tend to be within or leading teams where it's five people, it's 50 people. Maybe it's 100 or 150, but there are personal relationships there on which everyone is drawing, they're forming trust to get work done. The strategist is operating at a different scale. There are trusted relationships, but something else is going on there because of how complex and vast it is.
0: Susan Santel, uh, who ran a division of Sprint, and Dr. Janine Davidson, who was Undersecretary of the Navy, both explained the differences between a builder and a strategist, especially in a large corporation. Can you explain the difference in how, in a smaller entrepreneurial organization, can a founder make themselves more of a strategist and spend less time actually micromanaging each part of the business? That's tough when you're used to doing and having control over everything, like so many entrepreneurs uh, end up suffering through as the business starts to take off, grow, and add people.
1: Yeah, let me unpack that a little bit, just so to to give you the brief overview on on all four. Fixer is the energy that you love running into the burning building. You you are driven by massive problems that most individuals cannot solve, okay? Artist is the energy that sees the world as a blank canvas or a piece of clay to be molded. And it can be to the artist's peril. I'm strong artist driven, I'm incredibly creative, but I am not the greatest person to run an organization, okay? Builder, everyone in business, everyone in organization loves to be a builder. We mean something specific here, which is the energy that can take the smaller, the nascent team, product, service, grow that from a point of small to scale, to market domination. What you tend to see with builder energy is once that person has achieved that, they're going to rotate off. They hit the IPO, they're going to move. They're going to move to a new company, a new team, because they need to do that over again. Strategist is the leader at scale. And those challenges there at scale, the example you use, Mark, Dr. Janine Davidson, undersecretary of the Department of Defense, over a million people. And Janine's language was around systems of systems. And if you can cause a change, that's just a 1% change, eventually you're going to see something incredibly significant. Um, The language of strategist is around loyalty to an organization, around being mentored and mentoring around longevity, around gratitude. These are all wonderful. That's not the primary language you will hear from fixer and artist and builder. Fixer, you hear about velocity, about attacking a problem as fast as you can. Artist, you're hearing, you're hearing all of this around what is this disruptive innovation? The artist is the renegade on your team. Builder, you're always gonna hear language about people, process, system, getting it in place to achieve dominance. Do
0: those distinctions make sense? Yeah, they do to me. Absolutely. We have a question from the audience. Do you think the majority of CEOs of the NASDAQ and the London Stock Exchange, 100 companies, are in those positions because of great leadership skills they have? Uh, And if yes, please explain why. If no, why not? Um, Well,
1: I don't wanna generalize, but hearing that question reminds me of, you know, we we interviewed a lot of leaders for the book. We also interviewed a number of organizational psychologists to say, listen, we have this organizing principle, a framework, fixer, artist, builder, strategist, are we crazy? And one of the brilliant psychologists we interviewed, he said, look, 90% of leaders are in the wrong role. It was Gallup research. And when we heard that, we're like, that makes sense. So so if, if you want a general answer, it would be there's no way all of them are in what we would call highest and best use. We're, we're very big on that phrase. The way we put it into the book is that exceptional leaders tend to reject more of what is not for their highest and best use. Average leaders, it's a little more desperate. It's not as focused, tend to be all things to all people. The more the exceptional the leader is, the more they tend to double down, the more they tend to reject things that are not for their highest and best use.
0: Former uh, Farmer Insurance President, and I'm not saying this name right. Mahes. Uh, Mace Samala. Mahes Samalia, yeah. Uh, talks about identifying the motivation points. What's he talking about? That. What's he talking about? And how does a leader identify outside of increased sales means bigger paychecks? I mean, outside of motivating people through money, what's he talking about here? And how do you use that?
1: We thought it was a brilliant insight. Mahayes, he he ran a part of a big insurance company with fourteen thousand people under him, and he he said, "It's just it's a very dangerous thing to assume." that the way you look at the world the way you're motivated in work is gonna be the same for everyone else. And he said, he said, when you have a vast kind of army at your disposal, consider that there are three components to that army. He said the top performing portion of that called the top five or 10%, he said, you really don't have to worry about them. They're so motivated and driven you're not there's nothing you're doing which is really like oh my god you're you're making you're making them perform even better he said if you look at then the low end of the organization people who are not performing well he said something's going to happen there and and he was kind of implying you know we live in a somewhat GE Jack Welch world which is that if you're not performing well sooner or later you're out or something's going to change He said the job of strategist, of leader of vast organization, it's the middle. It's this vast middle that has a variety of motives for why they work within your organization and what they do. And he said, that's the challenge of, of strategist energy is what do you do? How do you move that vast middle of the organization and do that better than your competitors?
0: I've been wondering as we've been uh, watching uh, Zelensky in Ukraine uh, keep the um, you, not only the Ukrainians in the game, but by many people around the world feeling that they're actually um, getting the better of the Russians. What kind of leadership traits has he displayed among the four that you have listed? And why is he being so successful where the guy from Afghanistan? He outnumbered, I mean, he had you know, outnumbered the Taliban 10, 15 to one, more of everything. And within two weeks, they were done, and he was out of the country, didn't even think twice about staying around. So, what, yeah. what's your take on those two different leaders?
1: Well, I'm I'm very cautious because we do not want to apply the, the, the shorthand for the model is FAB's leadership, F-A-B-S. Um we're, we're, we're not experts in politics. Government is its own calculus that I do not think behaves in the same merit, meritocratic meritocracy senses as most organizations, whether they're for-profit or nonprofits. Um, it's only, you know, like Churchill with the passage of 50, 75 years, Lincoln with 150 years, where they become iconic and can stand for something. But what I would say appears to be occurring with Zelensky is this incredible fixer energy, this this ability to run into a burning building time after time and that that is where you get your energy. And my guess is for him it came out of left field as much as for everyone else because his background was as a comedian and as an actor, which is primarily what we would consider an artist style energy. But that is what he is proving is, is that he has this metal within him to withstand anything. And, you know, I was, look, I've been inspired, you know, one of his first quotes, you know, when they were attacked and everyone thought, oh, he's going to flee, let's go, you know, give him a home in Paris or whatever. And, And his phrase, he said, was something like, I don't want an exit, I want bullets. Do you remember the exact quote?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the quote, but that's he, he said something. He
1: said, "You know, don't give me something to flee. Give me ammunition or something."
0: Right. I I also think that in Zelensky's case, being a comedian and being an actor, and all the rejection you get and the constant criticism has made him incredibly resilient, more so than other people who would have been in that position. I think yeah. if if we interviewed him. Probably said he probably said that doing those things professionally is what allowed him to be able to handle what he what he's doing now. Do you think so? Yes, I'd agree with that. I, I, you
1: know, haven't deeply studied Ronald Reagan, obviously started as an actor and he did pretty well with it. But uh, Zelensky has been inspiring. Um, Oh, there's the quote. Thank you, Chuck. I don't need a ride. I need ammunition.
0: Thank yeah, you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jack. It's a great Rolfe line. Was always considered maybe the best CEO of the last century or the last half of the last century. Yet none of his guys who became leaders of large corporations were very successful. It's kind of like Bill Belichick. None of his assistant coaches even had a winning season anywhere that they've ended up coaching. Are those guys overrated in terms of their leadership or their leadership style only worked for them if they had the right things in place? Because look at GE. They're, uh, he had his hand-picked successor, uh, failed miserably at uh, with GE. And he failed miserably because all of a sudden the interest rates, everything started to change on them. The built the business he built no longer really existed. Was Jack Welch successful because that 20-year run was just right as interest rates were dropping? Well, what's her take about what now looking back? Is Jack Welch as great as we thought, especially when you looked at his guys who everybody wanted, but none of those guys were very successful?
1: Well, look, I'm, I'm giving you my own take. I think Jack Welch was absolutely the right leader for the right time at GE, and he had an incredible run it was not a run that anybody could repeat. And Jeff Immelt after him completely did not repeat that run. And there's no way anyone could say, to my mind, that that Immelt was was even remotely successful. Uh, I don't think that at all. I I also don't want to apply a different standard. Um, We tend to do that now, especially, you, you know, with historical figures. And Jack Welch was able to do things at the time that shall we say would be frowned upon more uh, now. There was a, It was a fairly brutal style of of what occurred with the, the lowest performers there. And maybe it would have repeated the same way now, but um, that's a tougher act to pull off. Um, uh, well, and I'll go back, Mark, to an example you used because Elon Musk may be successful at Twitter. I hope he is. But the primary reason I think Elon Musk is the greatest artist leader of the modern age, it's not Twitter. It's because of Tesla and SpaceX and the boring company. Because what the job of the innovator is, it, it's changing the world for the better. And you know, if we, we look back 20 years to when Tesla was started, everyone thought he was crazy. An electric car was just a toy. It was a novelty. And you now look now, around the world, it is an accepted piece of wisdom, which is internal combustion engines are going away. They're just going away. And everyone is going to EV, to electric vehicles. You have Elon Musk to thank for that.
0: Yeah. And even though he wasn't the visionary for any of those things, other people created him. He was able to take him to the level and get everybody to believe in this as well. Yeah. Uh, Question from the audience. And this is without getting political whatsoever. Uh, What do you think of Trump's style of leadership, or don't you think he really is a leader? We had somebody come on and said, he's not really a leader, he's an influencer.
1: I'm not a political animal. Um, And so it's a lot harder. I'm not the person who tries to analyze uh, current politicians and figure out um, necessarily what resonates with their leadership style. I think it is something where the passage of time helps to see what somebody's track record truly is. Well, for for all of the modern leaders that are there, there are pluses and minuses to what they do. And the dust hasn't settled yet. And so for our purposes, it's it's not it's not helpful to go into it because it does not stand for enough people in terms of the senses, oh, this was really great, but this was not. I mean, I'll go back to an example of of Lincoln, who I think is incredibly heroic. He's the greatest American president we've had, bar none. It's not something that everybody really notices that he suspended the writ of habeas corpus, which means he had journalists thrown into jail who did not come to trial, and he was trying to keep the union together. So so Lincoln, as, a, as, as someone you can view as iconic, I think he's incredibly inspiring. It doesn't mean that every single action that he took would meet with um, modern-day approval.
0: Yeah, and, and it took people, what, 30, 40 years to really start to appreciate what he did. Roosevelt uh, kept the country together in an incredibly difficult time. We, Obama kept the country together during a very incredible... Uh, time. So it seems like the right people come along at the right time. We've been lucky that way uh, throughout history, even Washington, the fact that he refused to be named King, which was unheard of in the history of the world and just wanted to go home after winning that battle. Anybody else would take all the wealth and everything that goes with it. And here's a guy who never wanted any of it and had the most to lose because he was the 10th richest man in the colonies but was willing to go and give all of that up to make everybody else's life better. It's just an incredible story that's highly underrated. And we learn a lot about leadership. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the skills and mindset to be a builder like Elon Musk or Mary Kay, uh, who be Mary Kay uh, Cosmetics. What are the strengths and weaknesses? What do they think, uh, what do you, what do they think that if they did it once, they can take their playbook and do it again? Because you see that often uh, with serial entrepreneurs, uh, which I think you know, Elon Musk is dealing with right now. Is he's believing he can take that playbook. In fact, he said he's taken the idea that he had originally before uh, PayPal and is putting that into place right now uh, with Twitter. Well-
1: you know my my take on Elon, and you, you know I'm, I'm curious what everybody's is here. Uh, if you want to weigh in, is we would describe him as artist leadership, um, and and he has said he was deposed a couple of years ago in a court trial, and and he said he doesn't really like the job of being CEO. He he really simply wants to focus on product engineering when it comes to SpaceX and Tesla and those companies. So we would describe that as primarily artist energy, builder energy in terms of this, this mantra, this fixation on market domination. Um, it's not always, it's not always take over the world. I'll give you an example. Occasionally I go to Boston and there's a bakery chain in Boston called Tate, T-A-T-T-E. I think it's phenomenal. They have the greatest pastries and it's terrific. And whoever... Created Tate had market domination on the brain because if you're in the city of Boston or you're in one of the suburbs, you have a good chance you're going to run into one of these stores. But like I'm in Chicago, they're not here. And, and there may be some others around New England, but that's what what builder, builder Energy is, which says I have this market and I'm going to
0: own it. One of the keys you write about, based on your interviews, is the need to be transparent. Is there something as too much transparency, and wouldn't and what shouldn't, if anything, shouldn't you be transparent about? I I don't. I would never
1: put an obligation on anybody to say you know you are you're not entitled to your own confidences. Um, absolutely, you are. You're entitled to your confidences and your and your privacy. Um, we we had uh, four different styles we identified. Then we identified these commonalities among exceptional leaders. And one of them we said is great leaders don't hide. And I'll give you, with the, the negative example is um, I think instructive here. The, the former, there was a former CEO of Wells Fargo and Wells Fargo got great results because they started cross-selling. If you had a checking account, they wanted you to get a credit card. If you had a mortgage, they wanted you to do this. And uh, so the CEO played this up in quarterly earnings call years after years. And finally it came out that they had just made up millions and millions of accounts that their customers had never signed up for. They haul the CEO in front of Congress and they say, what of it? This is the way you said you were gonna grow. And it was completely false. It was completely fraudulent. What do you think his response was? He said, Well, that wasn't me, that was the board. Now, anybody who knows anything about business is that is not what the board does. The board is about governance. The board is about uh, who the CEO is. The board is not about marketing tactics, especially in an organization like that, that's hiding.
0: Yeah, that was a disgrace. Um, That is not taking on
1: responsibility. That is the opposite of what an accountable leader is. And because you, wonder, you know, then, look, Mark, we all make mistakes. I, I I don't know what mistake I'm on so far today, but there is no such thing as perfection. And for any leader that's had a great day, that's terrific. The next day someone you know looks at you the wrong way and your favorite employee quits, and, and you're not so great.
0: We're yeah, all only and
1: working towards bettering here.
0: Well, <clears throat> I guess. Uh, Maybe he was right when he said the board because the board should have fired him and the board did a bad job of monitoring him and making sure they knew because they trusted whatever he was telling them. And uh, you're right. When you lose a great employee like um, Bill Belichick lost Tom Brady, changed the whole equation from him. He became from a great coach to looking pretty mediocre and hasn't been able to come even remotely close to that success, you know, Mark. We're we're just
1: making me think of another example. Silicon Valley Bank SVB failed. Yes. Uh, what was it, six, eight weeks ago? And yeah. uh, you know, they hauled uh, they hauled the CEO into Congress and said, Do you, "Were there any decisions? Um, were there any things leading up to this that you think could have changed? You know, done better?" He said, "No, I don't think so." <laughs> okay
0: all right. Yeah, well, and for the longest time, Silicon Valley Bank was looked at as one of the premier banks that for 40 years, they look, hey, that was really smart, Dig, uh, go deep in one spot, which they did. And just like Republic Bank did with real estate developers become really good at one thing, and that will carry you. And for the longest time it did, and within a week for both of those guys, they saw their stock zeroed out, right, essentially, yep. in an incredibly short period of time. You had a great turnaround story about Carol and Howard Burnick turning around uh, their company, uh, Alberto VO5, making it into a billion-plus global company. And there were many tough parts, uh, one getting uh, her parents to see as an adult, uh, to seeing things have changed in the 30 years of running the business and stepping down to let the next generation take over without micromanaging. I, I work with many family businesses, and that is a really hard thing to do. Please tell us briefly that story and how they managed to keep the company more than relevant.
1: Yeah, Carol Burnick is, is an incredible leader um, and a family business, Alberto VO5. and and. Um, she and her husband actually hit a breaking point um, and it took that for her father uh, and mother to finally say, okay, um, we're going to have to do this. Um, interesting, by the way, we asked every leader um, who was interviewed for the book, what happened on your worst day? And we didn't mean an amalgam. We meant what, what was that day? Carol's the only person when we asked her that question, she said, the plant blew up. They had a, a plant in Mexico and there was an explosion. They didn't own the plant. They were only producing there. There were other customers there, but four people died. And uh, that was a wake up for, for Olivia and I to hear because you know, you hear about these esoteric problems and all of that, but this was very real. and And her response, was immediate and human. Um, they ended up paying for college educations for for uh, essentially to raise a number of children of, of uh, the workers for a long time as a response.
0: Uh, we have a question from the audience. What would be Phil Jackson, uh, former head coach of the Chicago Bulls from 89 to 98? And then of course the Lakers, he's won more championships than anybody in any any sport. Uh, himself, what style of leadership does he have, and wh- whatever that style is, is it necessary to have that style when you need to manage people with big egos? It's a great question.
1: It's a really great question. Um, outside of business and organization, I'm I'm somewhat winging it, and and I would love to hear what you all think. Phil Jackson, you know, from from what little I know, there's a lot of artist energy in there because he introduced things like meditation, um, you know, uh, to the team. And he was trying to do things that were innovations and, and a lot of winning coaches will do that. And that's a, that is an artist energy at work there. There's also, even though team size is not vast, uh, working with these personalities is complex. And there's a, there's a strategist energy in that because you're counting on mentoring and being mentored. You're counting on loyalty to an organization. And that's not the same energy, for example, Fixer. Fixer is going in and there's velocity that, to, to what they're doing that has to occur. But so Phil Jackson, for me, um, there's a lot of creative energy there. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of language you'd hear from strategists.
0: My my take on Phil Jackson, and he was terrible when he got into the executive branch of the organization uh, when he was with the Knicks. I mean, he was a total disaster there. But I think because he has a pretty substantial ego himself, and I think that his intellectual capacity, he was constantly giving these guys books to read. He talked to them at a different level. And you always hear that great coaches don't treat everybody the same that they realized they have to motivate the stars differently. I mean, even him letting Dennis Rodman go uh, to Las Vegas for a long weekend during the middle of the season and explaining to the rest of the team, if we want to get the most out of Dennis, we need to let him take that uh, long weekend in Las Vegas and explain it to him where other people would find that unacceptable. So I think that he was brilliant in terms of managing Highly successful, creative people where Larry Brown, who's a Hall of Fame coach, is very good at getting the most of the least amount of skill uh, that people have at a high level and motivating them to get to a different level. So you see a contrast in styles there. But when he didn't have Michael Jordan, the Bulls were mediocre, right? Like during the three years that Jordan wasn't there. And uh, Kobe ran him out of the Lakers. And then Kobe realized, you know what, we can't win without Phil and they had to bring Phil back and they won three more championships or something like that, that they won. You write about Christy Hefner, former chairman CEO of Playboy Enterprises and Sean Score, former president of Best Buy, talking about the need to be inclusive leaders, draw everyone out to get their opinion, especially those that don't volunteer. How do you do that when many people are intimidated uh, or uh, country culturally, that isn't expected? How do you do that?
1: It's a great question. And uh, Christy would be a great example that you, you, you impose it. Um, and, and maybe it starts out personally, but it becomes a matter of, this is the way we are. This is our culture, this is how we run. And so, you know, this was part of, we asked all these leaders who were interviewed, what habits do you have that you think account for your success as a leader? And for Christy, that was hers, which is she just refused to be the first person to state an opinion in a room on an issue. If you were in the room, there was a reason you were in the room, and she wanted to hear from you, and she did not want you being intimidated or not speaking because she had some predetermined point of view. It's uh, If you don't mind me going off that topic, Mark, yeah. one of the other habits, a very successful woman runs uh, therapy services. Her name is Diane Fungheiser, and we said, what, what are your success habits? You've grown to 600 Therapist, you're serving the school systems in Philadelphia and other big cities. How did you do that? She said, Well, I have my angry swim. What does that mean, an angry swim? And she said, Well, if I know like I'm gonna have to have a really tough conversation with a lawyer that day, and it's just gonna piss me off, she said, I go to the pool first and I swim, and it's an angry swim, and I'm gonna get it out before I have that conversation. It's a great habit.
0: Um, You write the best practices might not always be best. Uh, What do you mean by that?
1: That's a a line from Eric Kish. And um, he's a very practical person. And so, you know, when you're in an organization and everything is on fire, uh, it's not necessarily that there's something else that was done somewhere else that, oh, you can just adopt into your playbook and that it's going to work. And it's his way of being ultra practical. And the way that it played out, and he, he's in a, another company now where this is playing out, is they started instituting these daily stand-ups. It was one a day, then it went to three a day when a crisis became full-blown, and you're, you're rapidly reacting as practically as you can to the problem you're facing right then
0: here's the last question for you will skill sets of leaders change with AI and other life-changing technology and what will tomorrow's leader look like
1: great question we could all spend all day on uh, my short answer is yes um or put it this way if you think that everything you do now is it and that into a future where AI is is simply part of everything that you're you know nothing is going to change, um That's just that's just short-sighted thinking because we don't know all of the ways in which AI is going to play. There are things in which it's already good. I will tell you, I have a presentation, uh, I had to prepare for an organization, I cheated. I went on to chat GPT and I said, give me the five reasons why, you know, it's an organization of independent trustees and they use project, design. give me the five reasons. ChatGPT came back in five seconds, and it didn't do the work for me, but it gave me a skeleton. It gave me a structure on which I'm now going to go do my human best on top of it. Um, But there are plenty of ways in which, look, AI has been somewhat pervasive already, and we all need to be aware of this because the possibility for wrongdoing and for things to go completely wrong here is significant.
0: Everything good always is used for bad things and ends up that way. Um, Bob, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us. I really enjoyed your book. I hope other people, especially the insights, because you interviewed so many amazing people in the book. And I look forward to the next one. And hopefully it won't take you six years uh, to write the next book. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm honored. And it's a pleasure to be on with all of you. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. I look forward to seeing you next Friday. Goodbye from Vietnam.